Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Lucas Rappel, and today I'll be speaking with Margaret Scotty. Margaret is a historian of early modern science at York University in Toronto, Canada. In her work, she brings the history of science into dialogue with book history, maritime history, the history of technology, and the cultural and social history of Europe from the 16th to the 19th century. Scotty recently published her first book with Johns Hopkins University Press. Sailing School, Navigating Science and Skill from 1550 to 1800. This fascinating, beautifully illustrated, and deeply researched study draws upon hundreds of dog-eared textbooks and salt-stained manuscripts to investigate how early modern sailors developed mathematical and technical expertise in the age of exploration. Sailing School brings together eccentric teachers, inventive entrepreneurs, and a host of anonymous sailors to place expert navigators at the center of what historians sometimes describe as the scientific revolution. By linking vernacular practices with elite knowledge and by entangling the local and the global, or as she calls it, large and small sailing, Scotty is able to paint a new and remarkably detailed picture of this foundational episode in the history of science. Sailing School is a wonderful read, and I am so pleased to be joined by its author today. Welcome, Margaret, to uh, New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Thanks, Lucas. I'm happy to be here. So I thought we would start by just having you tell us a little bit about um, your own intellectual trajectory, and in particular, how you arrived at this project. So what first made you interested in sailing, navigation, and pedagogy during the early modern period? And how did you come to write this particular book, Sailing School? Uh, Well, I guess there are two parts to that answer. One is that uh, my family on both sides uh, has sort of maritime roots. My dad's from Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and then my mom's family is all from uh, Nova Scotia. So there's a lot of water on on both sides and summer vacation and travel to uh, to places, and all you hear are sort of stories about, oh, we had a great great grandfather who sailed to Australia, or, or your your other great grandfather reported on the Titanic, or certain things. So um, I'm realizing now that those childhood stories uh, definitely made me predisposed to this topic. Um, and then the more kind of academic route. Before I went to grad school, I worked for uh, an antiquarian book dealer. And uh, it's very interesting when you're uh, in an industry where people collect a lot of important, famous books. Uh, then when you come across uh, a certain kind of books that maybe don't sell as much or as often, uh, you start to feel protective of them. And so I was really interested. Um, we had a number of early modern math textbooks uh, and those that had uh, engraved plates would sell. Um, but often they were these little tiny dingy pocketbooks. Uh, and, you know, you might have a, an author portrait or not, but um, the real place where you could find a hint about the personality of the, of the author was in the, 
in the introduction, the prefatory uh, material. And so I really was like, these are, these are amazing. How come no one cares about uh, these mathematics teachers in, you know, the Southern, some Southern town in Germany or, or whatever it was. Um, so when I was applying to grad school, I thought there's this whole genre of textbooks um, that I'd like to, to delve more deeply into, but wait a second. I'm not sure I'm really uh, wanting to sign up for five to 10 years of, of math textbooks. Let me take a look at uh, navigational textbooks because they're, they're similar to, you know, often overlooked, assumed to be very dry, but really when you, when you find out who are the, the writers or the, you know, the teachers behind them, uh, you, you can find stories and windows into the classroom. So that's where my original interest in the topic uh, emerged. Cool. Yeah. So that actually brings up a question I had about your, um, the narrative of your book which is the role of mathematics in navigation. So today, I think a lot of people who learn navigation or who are interested in sailing, especially blue water sailing, kind of take it for granted that uh, the art of navigation has a strong mathematical component. And in order to navigate, especially in the open ocean, one must first know some basic geometry, arithmetic, uh, maybe even trigonometry. Uh, but from reading your book, I got the sense that that was not always the case. So can you tell us a little bit about how navigation became mathematical? And what sorts of tensions emerged with more traditional ways of approaching the subject of navigation as it became increasingly mathematical? Sure. So, you know, the neat thing about studying, you know, a really traditional art or science um, just at the beginning of the age of print, you know, so if we look at navigation or sailing in the 16th century, um, you really can find the first time that these uh, techniques were written down, um, you know, so whether it's in the first half of the 16th century when the Spanish are trying to provide, you know, a curriculum for their new school at the Casa de la Contratación, um, you know, they're, they're sort of capturing technical knowledge at that moment, right? Early 16th century, all of a sudden we're going from, you know, local small navigation to blue water sailing, right? When you can't see familiar landmarks and you need a new way of, of identifying your location. Um, so the interesting thing was when you write stuff down, you are trying to capture the, the modern cutting edge. Here's how you use the stars. But those authors in that time period also then kind of looked back and also described the traditional way of sailing. So you have both the, the new um, you know, we need to look up at the, at the heavens and, and measure the angle. That would be the sort of new celestial um, type of navigation. And then you also have, uh, what did you do before? You sounded to see how deep the water is. You looked at the surface of the water to see how fast your boat was going. You know, they, they kind of, um, that's why actually studying textbooks are so interesting because they are sort of a window into the past and a, a window into the direction the field will go. Um, so what I try to argue in the book is those early techniques, you did need a lot of math. Um, I really think that this is a story not of relentless mathematization. And, you know, as we get into the 18th century, we're going to be more modern and, you know, people get smarter. You know, I'm really kind of resisting that. Um, teleological narrative. Uh, so I'd like to say, like, even in the very earlier time period, when you're saying, 
what time is it safe to go into that harbor? You know, when is the tide going to be high? Uh, you need to divide by 19 to figure out your calendar. You need to um, carry the remainder. You need to um, divide by 28. There are all these um, mathematical things that a lot of people were doing um, quite early. Um, so that's that's one half of my answer. These guys were already uh, pretty adept, numerate, um, smart, you know, even before they really needed to learn uh, the math that is involved in celestial navigation. Um, so, you know, later, uh, this type of math you need to do definitely becomes insanely complex, right? It's going to take you a lot of time to f- figure out, you know, your trig, um, using your logarithms, all of these different uh, new techniques. But I really see um, the thing that made you a good sailor up through the 15th century was really having a good memory uh, because you needed to keep track of your geography. You needed to figure out, you know, the patterns of when the stars are rising and things like that. And so later, a good memory was essential as well, but you sort of could deploy it on different things because now you have atlases. You don't need to memorize the coastline. You can open your atlas and see where you are. Um, You don't need to memorize the time that the, um, I don't know, the moon is rising or whatever because it's in an almanac. You can use your memory uh, for the new mathematical things. So I think that's... um, a story really where the math starts earlier and the memory continues longer. Um, so. So if I hear you correctly, the argument is something like not a sort of teleological story in which sailing went from being a mathematical to becoming highly mathematical, but rather that there's new kinds of math that were developed for new kinds of sailing practices or new sailing challenges that people have started to encounter. And therefore they had to develop new kinds of techniques that use new sorts of tools and technologies, including, yeah. Right, exactly. Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, So I guess your introduction made me think of another kind of question. So you became interested in the topic through these kind of early modern, these sort of rare books, these uh, uh, kind of mathematics textbooks. And that's, uh, so that leads to another thing that really struck me about your book, Sailing School, which is the amazing archives that you've assembled. And you know, really in many cases, kind of beautiful archive that you've assembled. So there's wonderful color illustrations in the book. So I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about that, the kind of archival research that you clearly took great, great pleasure in doing, but also I suspect must have, um, you must have encountered some challenges in assembling this amazing archive. And also <laughs> if you just have any good stories about kind of some of the archival work that you were doing in producing this, this manuscript. Ah, sure. There are a lot of um, potential answers to that. Um, I guess probably, okay, I'll tell you again, I'll tell you two stories. The first one is um, what I thought this project might be at the beginning, which I was hoping it was going to be a project about invention, you know, new instruments, um, who are the uh, sort of inventors of different uh, technologies in different countries. So I head off to the archives to try and find these and to see, you know, are people trying to protect uh you know, an invention, like are the British trying to make sure that their, you know, new instrument stays only on British ships? Well, you may or may not be surprised to hear, you can't find this type of record in the archives. Um, Unfortunately, no one labels the folders 
top secret British <laughs> instrument. <laughs> so I realized pretty quickly I was going to have to uh, change tacks. And I was actually uh, doing a Dutch language course in the mornings in Leiden. And um, it's pretty fantastic library there. So I would just go in the afternoon to pour over whatever they had that was cataloged as navigation and then also mathematics and they, you know, they blend. So there's a lot of, of overlap. Um, and once I had taken, you know, a couple thousand photos of, of those documents, I went a little further. I went to Den Haag, I went to Rotterdam and, you know, madly photographed. Um, and this was in 2008 and really not that much was being, uh, digitized yet. Um, and that's one of the things when you work on a project for a decade and then start um, checking your footnotes at the very last stages of the project and you realize how much of the material is now online in these beautiful digitized um, files. So I'm not complaining. I'm glad that uh, someone with a steadier hand and no thumbs in the fingers has um, digitized a lot of this stuff. Um, but it is really Interesting. I think maybe also because I was, you know, working with rare books uh, professionally, you realize that each each copy of the book has a story. And so even if you've already seen a copy of that book before, it's still worth pulling up to see if it's the same edition or see if there's, you know, personal notes in it. Or, you know, maybe this one has answers written in by a student or, you know, so I guess even though things have been digitized, it's I still advocate for the legwork in the archives if you can. Um, yeah, so I, I guess that that's my that's my first archival story, and the last one maybe is um, I handed my dissertation in um, in 2014 uh, at the very end of March, and I had a conference to go to in Greenwich in England. So I hop on the plane and I give a talk at this conference and. Uh, in the afternoon, go to the library and say, well, I called up a lot of material here, you know, a few years before, but let me see what else there is. And it was in this sort of afternoon pause in the conference, I pull up this set of, of manuscript material uh, that I hadn't seen before. And it turned out to be, you know, one of those lightning moments where um, pouring over all of these uh, records of one particular um, captain's journey. So this is Edward Ryu, who's the subject of the, the last chapter of my book. He was a, a master data collector. He must have sent instructions home to his mother to say, please save all my paperwork because everything is there, every rough notebook from all these other voyages. And um, he helpfully labeled them. And so there's one little, you know, beaten up um, volume and it was labeled day's work and inside are just columns after column of rough numbers and some are scratched out and you know but seeing that all of a sudden made me realize that something I had been uh, you know puzzling over from a different archive was the same material it was the same day's work just like a French guy's uh, calculations and he was figuring out his position but he hadn't labeled his pages. And so I had been unclear what exactly those notes were. But thank you to Ryu because he he made me um, sort of able to look back at all of my digitized images and say, oh, right, this is, this is the guys caught in the act of doing their computations. Um, 
it's not the copying into the into the workbook, but it's actually applying the math that they've been learning. And so I would never have thought that, you know, a week after finishing my dissertation, I would have this <laughs> kind of lightning moment. And then uh, Ryu's own story is so riveting. So that turned into um, the kind of grand shipwreck narrative of the of the last chapter. It's kind of like the uh, the moment where all of the preceding material um, comes together. And so I'm very, very grateful that I uh, got to go to England for that last conference. Um, Cause otherwise I think the book would have a different, uh, have a different narrative arc. So. Yeah, that's amazing. Let's, let's <laughs> hope that you don't have a similar experience just after having published the book. Again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Enough yeah. lightning moments. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, do you want to tell us the story of Ryu? Because it is a really amazing dramatic story. Oh, sure. Um, Ryu is one of my favorite, um, favorite kind of moments of like, well, what's your book about? And of course, really, my book is about the, you know, influence of print on tacit knowledge. It's really about history of science and how they've sidelined navigators, you know, like it's, it's about, you know, memory and, and computation. But the story that I like to tell is what happens if you um, basically go to sea and have a disaster how do you how what how do you cope um and so as i mentioned i um came across the papers of edward ryu who was a a young lieutenant um a, a british sort of fairly wealthy family uh, he had gone to sea at the age of 12 um and his mother saved his first math notebooks so we can study exactly which um, questions he learned, you know, his spherical trigonometry book survives. Uh, at one point he writes home and says, Oh, dear mother, um, I would ask that you take special care of one of my maritime notebooks. I fear I've left it behind. It includes very important nautical information. Well, when you look at that notebook, oh, this nautical information basically includes his doodles, um, bets with his buddies, you know, and some pretty bad poetry. Um, but he felt that it was important and he didn't want any of his records uh, to get lost. So um, he had, you know, um, one important thing of his early formative years was that he sailed with Captain Cook on his third voyage. Uh, so he was, you know, circumnavigated the, the world on the uh, voyage that Cook himself was killed, um, and actually at one point probably shared uh, a ship with William Bly. And I think uh, one of the really interesting things about sailing with Cook is that you uh, were introduced to the most cutting edge, high tech, uh, you know, instruments and ways of doing navigation. So the the people that were on those voyages with Cook, um, you know, were not daunted by all of the math. Um, they, they did it every day. Uh, and I think this is, you know, indicative of Cook's own training. He, he also, um, as a youth, really sought out uh, the latest navigation methods. So I, th I think you can, uh, you can really look back and see the, the men who sailed around the world with, with Cook um, became uh, a pretty elite um, group of navigators, I would say. So uh, what happens? Uh, Edward Ryu, young Nettie, uh, gets a commission at the age of 26, and he's supposed to take a boat 
called the HMS Guardian and sail her to Botany Bay. Uh, and this is the second transport to Australia. Uh, he's charged with taking 24 convicts along, but also supplies to outfit the colony uh, for two years. So his boat is filled with you know, salt beef and wine, clothes, you know, shoes and hats, um, livestock. You know, it's this it, sort of very, very thorough, uh, I don't know, a thousand tons of cargo. Um, and Joseph Banks is weighing in on, uh, uh, you know, what plants should go to Australia. He designs a little greenhouse that goes on the, on the deck. Uh, and people are reporting into Banks, you know, that some of the guys on board are, are both the guards of the convicts and also the gardeners <laughs> in one of these odd juxtapositions, I think, when you have to do more than one job on board a ship. I don't think people expected to have to water, uh, you know, flowering herbs on their way south to Australia. But um, again, it was seen as how do you set up a colony? Um, what are going to be useful plants to take with you? All right. So the ship uh, sails from from England down to the Cape of Good Hope or to Cape Town. And then from there in December 1789, uh, it sets off for Australia. But three weeks into the voyage, they are already running low on water. Um, and, you know, this is could be concerning. You have to put the livestock on, on partial rations and then also put the convicts on partial rations. Um, but then here we are in the sort of rough southern Indian Ocean, and there's an iceberg. And Ryu knows what to do because he has uh, sailed with Cook. And Cook himself, in these same waters, um, had encountered an iceberg and harvested some floating chunks of ice. Um, and so Ryu says, well, we'll just do the same thing. But I think this is like late December. The seas are just pitching and you know all of a sudden Ryu starts to realize this could this could end badly he sets a double watch to make sure that they're not too close to the icebergs but of course it's foggy and then it's dark and then the next morning they wake up and the the iceberg is like you know feet away from the boat and um you know the worst the worst thing happens on uh December 24th 1789 um the iceberg staves a hole in the hull of the ship and uh, ruins the rudder. So now the the interesting thing about this uh, misadventure is obviously uh, some of the men survive and give us a, a written account. So um, we kind of know that it's going to end okay. But boy, <laughs> the the account of this is pretty um, harrowing. So people are leaping overboard. They're you know stealing rum and getting drunk and leaping overboard. They're, you know, stealing things from Ryu. Um, but he seemingly is super calm and he gets people to start pumping, um, pumping. The, there's four little pumps on board. Of course, they keep breaking. The water keeps rising. Um, and, you know, Christmas Day is even worse. Um, so they make the decision to load the four ship's boats and as many men that can should save themselves. They go off into these boats with like virtually no equipment, no food. You know, how are they going to survive? Um, but the largest of those four boats has 15 men in it, including the, the ship's master. And uh, they, they do survive. They get picked up 
maybe um, a week and a half into their their sort of solo voyage, they get picked up by a French ship. Um, and so they make it back to, uh, to Cape Town and the master reports, he says, well, I'm very sorry, but, you know, Lieutenant Ryu, Lieutenant Ryu and, and the Guardian, you know, had this horrendous accident. And so that letter gets sent up to London and then published in the London papers. And I think they went to Ryu's family and said, I'm sorry, your son stayed with the ship. You know, this is the end of the Guardian. Um, and that's April of 1790. And uh, something like four days later, a new report is published in the London paper. And that is a letter from Ryu himself. He had survived. He'd made it back to Cape Town. And he sent his own letter to say, don't worry, <laughs> dear mother, <laughs> dear Admiralty, all is fine with the Guardian. Um, and so he had spent eight weeks really uh, getting this crippled ship. Uh, at, you know, first, it was a question of, can we keep it dry enough uh, not to sink. And they do actually think that the, the large number of supplies, um, you know, they had a lot of barrels in the, in the hold and that probably helped it stay afloat. Um, and then he tried a number of different techniques of, of creating a new rudder or a different steering device. Um, he dragged sails underneath the hull to try and, you know, patch the hull to stop the, the water rushing in. Um, and so throughout all of this, you still see him uh, keeping records, right? Doing all of his observations or as many as he could. And again, terrible weather, you know, almost no sunshine. So he couldn't actually do his noon sights in, you know, um, it must've been pretty, pretty wretched. You know, he kept getting injured and his hands would get beaten up and he couldn't write. And, you know, so, um, towards the end of the voyage, he's writing these kind of pathetic notes across his page, you know, losing, and you just, um, you just wonder, um, how were they managing? There's threats of mutiny. And again, they're starting to worry about scurvy, um, and, you know, on and on. I think, um, there's, there's no shortage of, <laughs> of drama on this, on this voyage. Um, but, uh, it was late February, 1790, when they actually sight, uh, Table Mountain and they know that they are back to the one part of the continent that they actually uh, recognize and know how to uh, you know, reach back to shore. Because by this point, they don't even have enough um, scrap wood below to, to make a raft, right? He's petrified that he's going to run aground on, on a patch of, of shore that's too rocky and they'll you know, be dashed to their death, right? You know, right, almost as they're saved. But luckily, some Dutch whaleboats come out and um, tow them in. So uh, anyways, it's just, a, you know, um, a really riveting story. Um, but my favorite part about it is the fact that, um, you know, Ryu is, you know, saved. The, the boat is, um, is, you know, beyond repair. But he goes back to London and uh, he becomes a hero. And in fact, you now can, uh, you know, apparently, if you were in London in 1790 or 91, you could see a reenactment of this story on the stage. Um, you know, there are advertisements in the paper to, you know, come and see uh, the, the heroic tale of the Guardian. And then there are songs. Uh, and so, <laughs> uh, sort of amusingly, Google Books has scans of the sheet music from these stage productions. Um, and 
I, I think it would be amazing. I would love to to come up with a new sort of reenactment of the wreck of the Guardian, um, the one song called the Forecastle Sailor, and then from the same um, from the same show, something called Jack the Guinea Pig, some, sung by a woman called Mrs. Harlow. Um, and so you just think, who's who's going to the theater to see these guys almost die? Uh, but I guess you know the fact that they survived makes it um, you know a compelling story. So. That is the that is the adventure of uh, Edward Ryu. <laughs> I have to say, it's it's to me at least, it's not at all surprising. It's an, am- an amazingly dramatic story, and I just love this image of you know Lieutenant Ryu yeah. trying to keep his ship afloat, fixing the pumps so he can right. pump some of the water out of the hull, and trying to steer with these weird contraptions that are you know because he doesn't have a functioning rudder, right. and all the time he's got this moral compulsion for record keeping. Right, so he keeps writing the visit. <laughs> Exactly. So it really, yeah, it just really in dramatic fashion brings out the kind of um, just how strong this, this, this compulsion was to, to, to keep records and write things down and kind of make calculations. Right. Right. Um, For me, I think it's like, it's the perfect demonstration that there's the book learning and he never gives up on the book learning, right? The math is there. And every day he just, you know, is desperate to try and get his, his sighting so that he can try and figure out his position. Um, But it's also the hands-on learning, right? Like the stuff that he learned with, with cook or the, you know, even when he was, you know, he had a couple of shorter commissions in the Caribbean and things like that, Newfoundland. Um, and so if he hadn't done that, if he had just been a gentleman officer, they would have sunk, you know, but because he had both, right. He, he did know how to, um, take a sighting, you know, when, when there was a clear night and then sure enough, he could, plot that on the on the map and then they knew they were approaching shore right he i mean he does he admits um i previously would have been appalled to have such a bad estimate right but but then he's like well you know what we're close and i think that you know in situations where you know your ship is is like letting water pour in you're you're happy to be going you know within four or five points of your course which you know is almost 80 degrees off of where you thought you should be going. But he's like, that I'll take it. At least I'm going north. You know, at least I know which direction I'm going. So, um, yeah, <laughs> pretty, pretty. So one thing it, I was just saying that this brings up another question I had while reading the book. Uh, and it relates to the way that you um, integrate elite knowledge with vernacular knowledge. And so I'm curious if you could just speak a little bit more about this distinction and perhaps how it, uh, maps onto uh, social class in early modern Europe, and then finally, how um, kind of the narrative that you tell about navigation and seamanship and say like maritime culture in early modern Europe, how that can challenge or or maybe broaden our kind of understanding of the traditional narrative of the scientific revolution. Great, thanks. Yeah, so. Um... It's so nice to talk to a historian of science about this book because there are a lot of audiences. There's, you know, maritime uh, enthusiasts. There are historians of the book. Uh, But I really was writing uh, for historians of science because I think, you know, navigation has been omitted from so many uh, accounts of the scientific revolution. Um, You know, Robert Merton briefly recognizes that sailors are important uh, in England. And then uh, Zilzel also briefly touches on sailors. But really for 
so many classics in the field, uh, navigation is not science, right? It's an art. It is intuition. It's not uh, not technical enough. Um, and so I, I think that there's enough evidence here to disprove that. Um, and it's not an example of high theory, uh, which is then applied downwards, right? This is really uh, working practitioners who solve problems, and then we see it go up uh, into print and maybe up from there up to um, more learned readers, um, administrators, other people who haven't been to see. And then once it's codified in print, then it, it disseminates back down again. And so I think that's such an uh, important case study to say, here is, um, you know, vernacular knowledge um, coming up the ladder rather than the other way uh, around. Um, the best example I have of that is really uh, one Dutchman who was trying to solve the longitude problem and, you know, not like Harrison in, in the uh, later 18th century, he's interested in trying to solve this longitude um, conundrum in the 16 teens. Um, the Dutch have a, a longitude prize at that same time and then the Spanish also. So, you know, everyone is, is interested in trying to figure out how to, how to um, figure out where you are east to west. Um, and this guy happens to be a tax collector, and he comes up with a new system. His name is uh, Jan Hendricks Jarex van der Leij. And he, he says, okay, I've got a new method. I think you need um, basically graduated chart paper and a protractor. And he, you know, designs this special new set of paper tools. And then he uh, heads out on a, a ship himself, sails to New France and back, um, possibly by way of Greenland, and uh, then comes and submits his idea. And uh, the the sort of prize committee says, well, you're close. I don't think so. But you know what? We'll give you a little money. So he has a pension for life based on this idea. Um, it doesn't really work for longitude, but it is a really good tool for you know, reconciling a difference between your observed position and your dead reckoned position. So if, you know, uh, the sort of traditional way of sailing, which doesn't involve uh, taking observations from the stars. Um, so what's interesting to, to me about that case study is um, it goes into print in two uh, Dutch professors' uh, math books in Latin, about how to, you know, how to do navigation and astronomy and math. Um, and maybe a, a generation or two later, a French uh, navigation teacher can read Latin and he, he finds these, these descriptions in these Dutch professors' books. And he's like, wow, I love this idea. I'm going to use this. And this is a, a French abbot named uh, Guillaume Denis, who's running a school in his living room in Dieppe. And um, he's very good at what he does. And Jean-Baptiste Colbert says, you know what we need? We need you to be our royal uh, teacher of navigation. Uh, your living room's now a royal college. <laughs> and uh, so from there, basically, uh, this one very influential French teacher um, teaches Jarex van der Leyen's method, and it becomes you know, a crucial uh, rule that French sailors use for the following century. Uh, so I think here's this example of, you know, one small, like, 
not a theoretical guy, um, who is then able to um, have his technique uh, sort of, I don't know, turned into a theory, uh, but then it turns back into an applied uh, tool, set of rules. And then only later in the late 18th century do certain French mathematicians say, um, mm, this is very interesting. I think we could actually um, turn this into an algebraic problem and publish it in the Académie des Sciences. Um, you know, so there is this up and down uh, between vernacular knowledge and elite. So, so that's my short way of, <laughs> of saying. Um, I think navigation has been omitted from our story of the scientific revolution, uh, but it actually is an ideal uh, example of how many more people were much more numerate or much more sophisticated in their, you know, applied math than we've really recognized. Yeah. I mean, I kept thinking when I was reading your book, I kept thinking about Hal Cook's book, Matters of Exchange, Mm -hmm. where he makes a kind of similar argument about the importance of embodied vernacular knowledge, but he does it through natural history and medicine and kind of makes this claim that, you know, traditionally the way we've written about science in the early modern period and kind of these old histories Poiret and Butterfield and so on and so forth, Merton of the scientific revolution, emphasizing astronomy and the more physical mathematical sciences uh, have left out uh, vernacular knowledge because they haven't paid attention to uh, natural history and medicine. And then in your case, you're kind of showing that, no, in fact, even in astronomy and mathematics and these kinds of sciences, there's all this vernacular knowledge going on and it's, it's there as well. So I thought that was, anyway, just kind of a really interesting I was talking to a, you know, a friend who does French, uh, oh no, German mining. And he's like, look at this. It's the same story here. But again, we've, we've left it out of our, you know, more traditional, you know, first generation stories about the scientific revolution. So maybe, you know, my argument about the importance of textbooks as like a lens into both, you know, preserving old uh, ways of doing things and setting the setting the path forward. I think that's probably, you know, true for many more fields than just navigation or just mining. Um, so. Well, yeah, I mean, as a historian of paleontology myself, I can say mining, I think I right. could not agree more that mining is super important and has not been given the credit or right, right, the right. attention that it deserves. But it's mining um, textbooks, mining textbooks. <laughs> well, so this actually brings me to the next question I have, which is about pedagogy. So a lot of your book is is not just about different forms of knowledge and how knowledge kind of is transmitted um, uh, among different practitioners, but in particular, the role of kind of the role of pedagogy in uh, as a kind of uh, vector or technology in the circulation of knowledge. So I'm just curious if you could speak a little bit more to that angle of your argument. And if you like also maybe how I'm wondering if you're see yourself as being in conversation with kind of historians of more late modern science, people like Dave Kaiser, for example, who've written a lot about pedagogy as well. Right. Well, Masters of Theory um, work about, uh, you know, the tripos in, in uh, Cambridge. That's exactly, you know, the model that I had for this. Um, what's really interesting about the earlier sort of people who have studied uh, naval education, uh, because it's usually if there are any records about uh, how people were trained, it is the navies, right? It's not these little in entrepreneurial schools that are popping up in people's living rooms. Uh, no one saves those archives. So, you know, the Navy will say, here's our curriculum. We are going to have people learn, you know, uh, 
all of this trigonometry. And then we're also going to have them learn how to fence. And we're going to have them spend this many hours doing um, gunnery and then some dancing. You know, like this is one of the French curriculum. But we don't have any student feedback on what did they actually do. And that's really frustrating in you know, these early 20th century accounts. Um, they just assume that the curriculum gets applied the way it was, you know, designed, uh, you know, by some bureaucrat. And I think we all know uh, curricula are always, uh, you know, works in progress, right? Idealized that actually don't get um, played out the way you might expect. And so that's where using uh, textbooks and then student manuscripts to help understand which parts of the curriculum uh, really were taught. You know, I think that's one of the important takeaways from my from my book. Basically, you know, we can get a better idea of what was actually taught because we are sort of triangulating between the ideal and then you know the classroom, you know, rules and regulations that survive in some places. And then when you see what the students were writing and you realize they would skip chapter three and four because chapter five was really hard and they'd spend a lot of time on chapter five, you know, all their examples are, you know, from there. Or we always go through chapter one, you know, because I think that sets the stage and it's sort of, you know, so anyways, I think um, that's the, the neat thing to say, well, you can't just take the administrators on their uh, face value because they are, you know, they're trying to get their curriculum, you know, approved. They're trying to get funding there, you know, but really there's no way you can teach those 26, you know, points in a 12 week course, you know? So um, when we look at the actual student work, then we're going to, you know, figure out the parts that they found challenging, the parts that, you know, uh, you really needed at C versus the parts that, you know, some, some, you know, backroom, pinhead just thought was important uh the actual sailors would say no no we don't need that um, and then you even see things which are in especially in the dutch uh, manuscript workbooks um a lot of sketches a lot of drawings and they're not in the printed te- textbooks because i think it was too expensive you couldn't put in all of these extra um large drawings or large diagrams uh, in in print because the publishers would say no i'm sorry the most expensive part of any book is the paper stock um so you could have a few small drawings but you can't have you know that large one that shows the the boat's course you know a 26 leg um, traverse course or whatever um but those end up in in the manuscript workbooks um and i i think i have uh, i make the argument basically that um a textbook would tell you what to do and then you'd work through it in class um in a cheaper workbook. Uh, And then when you get to the boat, you don't need to do those large diagrams anymore. You've learned them in in class and then you can kind of, you understand the concept. Um, And then when it actually comes to applying the knowledge, you can go back to the shortcut. But the classroom, you know, segment of this education is really important. Um, And if you just study the curriculum, you wouldn't understand that. And if you just study the textbooks, you wouldn't understand that. But we are lucky to have, you know, a fair number of these um, manuscript workbooks that survive and, and give us insight into the actual classroom. Yeah, this gets back to something that we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation about the amazing archive you've been able to assemble here. And I was just so impressed. I think it's in chapter four, I think, on paper sailors and classroom lessons that you have all these kind of these documents of the students like working through these problem sets and 
doing the kind of pen and paper work um, uh, that gives you these insights into you know, what was going on inside of these classrooms. Totally amazing. Um, so I guess I have just a couple more questions. So one of them has to do with the material culture of um, you know, seafaring and navigation in the early modern period. So of course there's the material culture of the kind of book history, right? Um, uh, publishing industry and so on and so forth. But then there's also all of these um, and, and all these interesting paper tools that are produced in these books, not, not just nautical charts and maps and things like that, but all kinds of kind of paper machines, you might even say, inside of these books. Then also all, all sorts of other technologies that people are using, quadrants and sextants and so on and so forth. So I'm just wondering if you wanted to speak a little bit about kind of the material culture aspect of the history that you have written. Sure. Well, I guess it's interesting, right? Like you wouldn't necessarily, well, maybe you yourself are a sailor, so you mightn't be surprised, but I think boats are filled with paper, right? They are just, you know, all these charts, all these logbooks. And, you know, this moment here in the 17th century is when it's becoming, you know, uh, when that, when that system is really rolled out where more and more of the, um, captains and navigators must be literate. So they're absolutely going to keep a record. And then the, you know, the, companies start expecting the paper record and um but you know you even have um some of these books i think become kind of backup emergency resources um, and i think that's new now that you can you know have an atlas on board or now you could have you know extra um tables or you know even some of these textbooks you see uh, two or three methods of solving the same problem and i think you know one method might be the faster one, but if you lose uh, your particular instrument or if it is broken or distorted, there are backup techniques. I think that this is a really uh, important aspect of these books that they are um, they're offering you a multitude of ways to to do your daily tasks so that you're never dependent only on one on one method. Um, in terms of the material culture, I guess I mentioned earlier, right? I I think it's worth looking at more than one copy of a book because you learn new things. Well, there's one uh, particular book uh, published by a Frenchman named Radouet in the 1720s. And um, one of his copies of his book actually has, you know, um, it's sort of a, a paper quadrant at the back. But in one copy of his book, it's printed on vellum. And it's just so interesting because you would never think you know, early 18th century, why are people still using vellum? It's got to be pretty rare by then. Uh, but vellum is waterproof, right? And, you know, actually, it's a super good idea to, to carry it on board ship. I mean, I guess if it got wet, it would be distorted. But, you know, it's pretty interesting to see. It's worth the extra expense of, of printing this quadrant on, uh, on, on vellum but it's not every copy, right? So if you go to another library and you're like, oh, this one's on paper, you know? So um, I think it's that's insight into people trying to make their tools more durable, you know, testing out, uh, you know, innovations and maybe they, maybe they last or maybe they don't. Um, one of my favorite aspects of these books, uh, which you kind of allude to, these paper machines are actually the Volvels. Um, when I started this project, Volvels were not really, uh, as popular as they are now. Um, but, you know, these little spinning discs, um, there's a famous article by Owen Gingrich, which basically says, 
oh, Volvels are an old technology which quickly get replaced by tables. Um, so by the you know early 17th century, Volvels are out of fashion. And of course, <laughs> no sooner than you publish this kind of article than people will find uh, examples to disprove you. But I have to say, Volvels persist and probably even uh, expand in popularity because um, one example, the, the book, the really important uh, navigation book by Pedro de Medina uh, has a lot of illustrations. It was actually pretty expensive, I think, done for an elite audience in Spain. Um, and he, in one place, shows the position of the, you know, the sun's position relative to the horizon on 16 different uh, diagrams. And so, you know, each diagram, there's a little difference in the position of the sun. Well, a different book, a couple, you know, decades later, presents that same information in a Volvel. And so, you know, the sun's position just shifts slightly. And instead of needing, you know, four or five pages, 16 different uh, woodblocks, now you can just have, you know, the base page and then the little spinning disc. Um, so in some ways, Volvels are, are a really, you know, handy innovation and very good for packing a lot of information uh, in. And then also, I think a very important um, conceptual tool to help you see um, three-dimensionality or rotation or, you know, people's position relative to the heavens. Um, And so for that reason, Volvels really are in these books all the way, at least through the the end of the 18th century. Um, So they do not vanish. They do not (laughs) become obsolete. They are not replaced by tables. They are, you know, um, a really important uh, hands-on tool. So, Well, I have a million more questions, but I think <laughs> instead of doing that, let, maybe I'll just ask one final question, which is, so first of all, you've just, this book has just come out. How, how many months ago? It came out quite recently, right? Uh, it came out in, in July, yeah. Okay. October so, in, in the UK. <laughs> so over the sort of late summer, early autumn. So first of all, congratulations on it being out. So maybe my question will be a little bit premature, but my question is about sort of what you're up to next or what you're up to now. So if you wanted to just speak a little bit about, you know, what other things you've been dreaming up uh, since finishing this project, or if you have new ideas about other things you'd like to, you know, embark on next. Ah, well, um, you know how every project has um, little side uh, topics that when you're trying to squeeze things into one book manuscript, you have to say goodbye to these side topics. Yeah, um, the outtakes of every book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one entire chapter of my dissertation is no longer in the book. Um, so I'm hoping to do something, um, and I'm not sure quite what. You know, is it a, a really meaty article, or is it a potentially a book with a, a crossover appeal? We'll see. But I have this fantastic set of documents from a French uh, East India company ship that sails from France to India in 1754. Uh, It's called the Prince de Conti. uh, And then it comes back after, you know, filling up with trade goods, spends some time in Mauritius and, um, you know, heads back. And what happens right around then is the outbreak of the Seven Years' War um, and so all of a sudden, you know, the French are at war with the English and um, they seize this boat. They take every single piece of paper off the boat and they uh, take it back to the Tower of London where the High Court Admiralty documents are stored. Um, and 
these papers are a total jumble, you know, salt stained and, and, you know, chewed by mice and who knows what. Um, but they're fantastic. They, they have, you know, um, just, well, <laughs> fantastic for me because they're filled with math. They are filled with, you know, lessons, someone with really bad handwriting, um, learning how to, you know, copy out new geometrical definitions, um, daily observations where they're turning in, you know, uh, data to a monsieur on board, you know, so someone is, is sort of teaching his crew how to do these, you know, um, celestial navigation tasks. Um, and yeah, I, I, maybe I, maybe I will not tell you anymore because I, I want you to the next book. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, so that's, that's ahead, I think. And then also, um, I'm going to, uh, work a little bit more on the exams, um, because there's a lot of material about, uh, examinations as part of the training, um, and various, uh, maritime historians, have poo-pooed the exams and said, no, no, come on. There aren't very many records in the archives. There can't be, uh, they couldn't have mattered. Um, And one of my big realizations is you may not have had to take the exam, but you certainly learned the lessons uh, that were tested on the exam because all these teachers are, you know, time after time and getting their students to work on these sort of these key tasks. And they might not be the most important in the textbooks, but because uh, they appear on the exam, that's what's in the in the manuscript records. Um, and so, I'd like to, you know, <clears throat> uh, put together an article that that really just demonstrates that an, an exam can shape a field, uh, and even a field that's you know traditional and apprenticeship based. Um, the administrators are trying to to make sure that everyone has a minimum standard, and uh, so I think. I found a decent amount of, of evidence that's going to help me make that argument. So, Early modern teaching to the test. It, um, exactly yeah. that, exactly. <laughs> well, if I could put in a plug for uh, a multimedia performance of the Eddie Ryu uh, <laughs> stage play, I think that would be another great... <laughs> oh, I think there'd be you know, grant funding, <laughs> maybe yeah, exactly. a, an undergraduate seminar. <laughs> I, I would come see it anyway. So uh-huh. <laughs> let's end there. So thank you so much, Margaret, for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Lucas. It was a pleasure.